for those of you that say, well, it really doesn't impact me. I don't care if Trump goes to prison. Well, first of all, you absolutely should care. Because if we lose, they're going to come after the churches. They're going to come after the organizations. They're going to come after the people. They're going to come after the social media accounts. They're going to come after the bank accounts. They're going to come after every single person that played any form and role into trying to defend President Trump. With social media banning, following in the streets, targeting in every form and fashion. If we lose, if the president loses, they will come for us all. They will come for your children. They will come for your schools. They, they will, will come, come in every, every fashion. fashion. And they won't stop. They are going to do whatever it takes to try to personally and intergenerationally destroy Donald Trump. That's how much they hate him. They hate him not because of his tweets, not because of his style. They hate him because all of their schemes have been put in jeopardy. They're going to come with bloodthirsty revenge. President Trump always says, quote, If you love birds, you'd never want to walk under a windmill because it's a very sad, sad sight. We are intrinsically tied to the president. He's with us. He's for us. I've called him the bodyguard of Western civilization. And boy, is he taking the body blows for us right now. But if they come for him, they're coming for us, and they're also coming for me. This is where it's headed. If Donald Trump loses, you can expect every level of power to try to obliterate us for good. This is a very real thing. If we lose in November, it's going to be Bedlam. That if they get power back, they're going to lock him up, and they're going to continue until they have absolute pathological power over our country. Please email us your thoughts. As always, freedom at charliekirk.com, freedom at charliekirk.com. Make sure you check out my interview with Cam Stallings, author of Blackout, phenomenal episode. Please consider supporting us at charliekirk.com slash support, charliekirk.com slash support. Please consider supporting us at Turning Point USA and getting involved at Turning Point USA in the cultural tpusa.com, tpusa.com. And if you guys want to win a signed copy of the Magnum Doctor, type in Charlie Kirk to your podcast provider, hit subscribe, give us a five-star review, screenshot it, email us, freedom at charliekirk.com, freedom at charliekirk.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. God bless you. Talk to you soon. All right, uh, that was uh, Ammon Animation's uh, video, Charlie Kirk Descends Into Madness. Uh, people may remember their work uh, from the uh, episode that we did, Jordan Peterson Wants You to Clean 12 More Rooms, uh, the combination of right-wing figures doing their thing with the uh, creepy Lovecraftian imagery is something that I am always a sucker for. Uh, but... Um, of course, I just saw the man himself. Um, there is there is now a, a picture of me uh, shaking hands with uh, with Charlie Kirk uh, that uh, that that exists somewhere. Uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll we'll be out there soon. Uh, so I just saw the man himself on Friday uh, to do a debate at the uh, TPUSA studio in Phoenix, Arizona, on um, Trumpian populism uh, versus democratic socialism. Uh, and, you know, all <laughs> jokes from that video aside, uh, you know, they, they were extremely gracious hosts. And, uh, and honestly, I think he's a really good sport just for doing it. Like most conservatives run screaming in the opposite direction from the opportunity to, uh, to engage with anybody who would, who would challenge, uh, challenge their views. So uh, I do think he deserves credit for that part. Uh, you know, said that at the, uh, at the very end, uh, the debate itself uh, is going to be out in three weeks because it is going to be aired as the third episode of his new show debate night with Charlie Kirk. Uh, the first one uh, is already up. Uh, with uh, with Dr. Uh, 
Rashad Ritchie, uh, and you know they're arguing about um, mask mandates in schools, I believe. And then uh, there there was one uh, that they recorded a few days earlier, and they're kind of and I think they're putting that out that one out this week. Uh, and so in any case, the way it works out, it's going to be like another two weeks uh, until the episode with me comes out. Uh, and the deal was when we we all agreed to do this um, that it's they they get it first to uh, to run on the CPUSA channel and then we get it and also Town Circle who set the whole thing up in the first place and raised enough money for charity to uh, you know pay for meals for eleven thousand people because people really wanted to see this particular conversation happen. Uh, so uh, so Town Circle gets it and we get it you know uh, all at the same time when it's unembargoed after they run it. Uh, so they, uh, their producer told me they were going to run it on uh, October 21st, which means that uh, we are going to show it here uh, as part of the episode instead of the big interview in the middle uh, on Monday, October 25th. Now that is three weeks in the future. I'm well aware that is like 10,000 years of YouTube time. Uh, you know, but everybody's like immediately, when, when can I see this? Uh, but uh, and you have to wait three weeks, you know, is, is not something people are used to hearing right now. But uh, that is the way it works out. Like I said, I'm just glad he uh, he did it because uh, most, uh, most of his ilk uh, do not. Uh, but uh, I can at least for now, I can at least give people a general sense of what went on. Uh, you know, some of it ended up, touching on philosophy stuff because as we've seen in uh, some of those previous debates uh, that we uh, that we watched on the channel he does like to bust out some philosophical claims you know there's no social contract rights come from God that sort of thing so we did get into some of that stuff and uh, the philosophy segment with uh, professor Jennifer Burgess at the end of the that we that we started doing at the end of the episode this week next week and the week after, Right. Yeah. Uh, the today's the fourth. So, yeah, fourth, 11th, 18th. Yeah. This week, next week, the week after uh, we're going to be doing a three part series teaching philosophy to Charlie Kirk, uh, where we uh, we talk about some of the things that came up in the philosophy parts. But as far as the main sort of political part, uh, even though the video won't be out for a few weeks, I could, you know, I can at least give a gen people a general sense of what went on. Uh, here and, uh, you know, we'll we'll we'll, we'll save some of the. Uh, choice or morsels for uh the post game with patrons but uh for uh, for right now uh I, I will just i'll just say this so like i said the announced topic was uh trumpian populism versus democratic socialism uh, he changed it to conservative populism when he set it up at the beginning i don't know if there's some kind of pivot there uh, you know about donald trump as the uh as the mascot uh for uh, for this new conservative populism uh, but at the beginning, I, you know, basically made the challenge that I really wanted to make uh, because this is when the people from Town Circle came to me in the first place, asked if I wanted to use their platform to challenge somebody to debate, you know, raise money for charity to make it happen. And I said, well, do you have anybody in mind? And they said, Charlie Kirk. I have to admit my first reaction was, okay, um, that's a thought, right? Uh, and then the more I started to think about it, the more it actually started to make sense to me because, you know, usually uh, I end up debating libertarians because they're the people on the right who are most up for that, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason. Uh, and 
Uh, and I'm all for that. And I, I imagine I'll continue to do that forever. But uh, Charlie Kirk, his views represent the views of like a vastly bigger chunk of actually existed reactionaries than the sort of hardcore property rights libertarians do. And he's very typical of those guys, of, of people, um, you know, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, uh, J.D. Vance, uh, certainly all those people have started claiming that they're not like the old kind of corporate Republicans, you know, they're populists. And so uh, how I framed it was basically, okay, so uh, if you're a populist, why don't you support raising the minimum wage? Why don't you support giving everybody health care? Uh, why don't you support making it easier for ordinary people to uh, organize unions, you know, so they can have a little bit of say in, in the workplace? And uh, whatever you think of his answers to those questions, and uh, people can judge for themselves in three weeks, I guess uh, what I will say now before I throw to Jake is just, um, I think it's a win all by itself that the main part, like the, there was a sort of main segment in a post game, basically that the main part was devoted to him having to give these like standard issue Reaganite arguments against raising the minimum wage and give everybody healthcare and make it easier to organize unions. I think that in itself is a tough fit with the populist Brandon. Yeah. Um, well, I think, uh, I only, uh, myself suffered through his debate with with Hassan um so that's that's what I'm I'm sure that some of them went off the rails less but it seems like from what you're saying uh you were able to keep it on your own turf or the turf you wanted it to stick on better than you know these other uh types of debates where he's able to just kind of go all over the place with uh these random statistics that he has in his little uh notebook uh <laughs> yeah yeah i i think uh i think that it was certainly more focused uh than the, than the hassan one was uh for sure actually uh so uh so yeah i i'm quite happy with that as i said uh we'll um you know during the more you know informal uh post game with patrons later uh we will talk a little bit more about some of what went on this weekend and of course, there's, you know, we'll get into that in uh, the teaching philosophy to Charlie Kirk segment at the end of the show. Meanwhile, uh, I uh, stayed on the topic of debates. Uh, we have some sound from a friend of the show, Sam Harris, um, who uh, is actually such a friend of the show that we did a episode last season uh, entitled Sam Harris is Wrong About Everything. Uh, and part of the reason that we're doing this. So our graphic designer, uh, J. Andrew World, who's going to be joining us for the next segment, uh, you know, is is the one who kind of brought us uh, this, this clip. And I have to admit, it stretches my confidence that he's wrong about everything. I, I think he's wrong about like 97% of everything. But three percent of the time he's he's spitting facts, huh? <laughs> yeah, three percent of the time he's not entirely wrong. Uh, fortunately, since it would really disturb me if I completely agreed with Sam Harris about something, uh, it's I, I I think that uh, I'm a little ambivalent about some of what he's talking about, but it's still an interesting clip. Uh, so uh, for a little bit of context for this, for for anybody who doesn't have the unhealthy fixation with his characters that I do. And uh, I mean, like Jake, I mean, you, you're a 
you did organizer, you know, before you, you started doing this and still, you know, like, uh, how much do you know about the characters in the saga? Oh, um, not, not, not a ton <laughs> to, to, to be honest. With okay. You. That's, that's good. And, 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 and I'm, and I'm very online. So somehow this, uh, <laughs> kind of slipped under my, uh, my radar. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, well, uh, so so that's that's healthy that's good uh to to not know tons about them um unfortunately because of you know stuff we were doing for this show and before that for tmbs you know when we do we do harris debunks and also helping michael with his book uh against the web uh, where he has a whole long chapter on sam harris um i have spent way too much time thinking about sam harris and even a little bit too much time thinking about Brett Weinstein. So uh, these are two of the leading figures in a branding exercise from 2018 called the Intellectual Dark Web. Oh, so, yes. Okay, this I know about. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So uh, the IDW, right, the Intellectual Dark Web, uh, so, which is how you always have to say it, uh, is... Uh, something, uh, I believe Brett's brother, Eric originally came up with the term, but it was most popularized, um, by, uh, empty headed former New York times columnist, uh, Barry Weiss. Um, you know, there are people I respect who, who think more of her than I do, but for me, her, the top line is always that she wrote these like weird vapid columns and, uh, that she like sometimes claims to care a lot about free speech, which, you know. If she really did, fair enough. I care about free speech. But um, also she spent a lot of time as like a college Zionist activist trying to get professors fired for, uh, you know, for, for being anti-Israel. That, that's just that's just speech, just more speech, you know, speech asking <laughs> to get people fired. Right. That's uh, yeah, no contradiction there. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> speech asking for people to be executed for their views you know it's all it's, it's speech speech um yeah so um in any case barry weiss wrote this profile in 2018 called meet the renegades of the intellectual dark web uh where she profiled this this group of uh of dudes all dudes uh Brett Weinstein and Sam Harris are the two that are going to feature in tonight's story. Uh, our, our other friend, Ben Shapiro, uh, who I believe actually, as we speak, I don't, I don't think it's live anywhere. We'll have to wait for the video, but as we speak, I believe uh, that that other Ben is debating our actual friend, Anna Kasparian in, uh, in Los Angeles. So I'm uh, looking forward to, uh, to breaking that down here in, in the future. Uh, I, I, expect that she will wipe the floor with him but um in any case uh ben shapiro sam harris brett weinstein his brother eric uh jordan peterson uh and a couple other guys uh weiss was not the one who wrote that article but the new york times really was going on a on a spree there you know since this was around the time yes as as dave uh, reminds us in the chat uh, that they uh, that they ran an article referring to Ben Shapiro as the cool kids philosopher. So this, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say it's the worst period of the New York Times. You know, they 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 did print all that Judith Miller stuff about the Iraq War, but um, you know, it's not good. Let's let's say that not good, bad. Uh, but in any case, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so 
the idea was, right, the metaphor, the intellectual dark web, uh, you know, is that it's like going on, you know, Silk Road to buy drugs online, uh, that this stuff that's like just too hot for like, you know, in this metaphor, the regular web that, that shows up in Google results, you know, this is like the secret subversive stuff where they're going to tell you these hidden truths, which was always a weird fit with the fact that they got a glowing profile in the New York Times where they were all like doing this weird photo shoot where they're all standing around like some like shrouded in the darkness, you know, with some like plants in the background going like this, you know. But um, in any case, uh, the I would recommend anybody who wants to, to read all about these guys do read Michael's book, uh, Against the Web. Uh, but, uh, but this is 2018 that these sort of um, reactionaries, but the kind of people who mostly would say like, oh, I'm not a conservative, I'm a classical liberal and also maybe a conservative. Uh, you know, the big exception was Ben Shapiro, who I think would have been more a more natural fit in a group that was like, I don't know, uh, Sean Hannity and Anna, Ann Coulter or something. But, uh, but other than that, right, it was mostly people like this. And the idea was they were super daring because they believed that, I don't know, gender was real or something. And um, since then, though, there has been a bit of a falling out. And the falling out, of course, uh, was due to the final stages of the Trump presidency. Uh, and Sam Harris pretty much had standard, you know, culturally liberal sort of like you know, blue state professional managerial class sort of views about all of that stuff. Uh, and which don't get me wrong is, is the lesser evil in this particular context. Uh, and, um, and some of the others, uh, including Brett Weinstein had a very different reaction and, uh, Brett Weinstein got very into, uh, Trumpist conspiracy theories about the election, uh, and he's also gotten very into COVID conspiracy theories. And that is the context of this clip. The reason why I don't want to do a podcast with Brett and Heather is the same as why I wouldn't do a podcast with a 9-11 truth conspiracy theorist or Alex Jones or anyone in that world. Because there's a basic asymmetry, which is very hard to overcome. It's so much easier to make a mess than to clean it up. It's so much easier to light several small fires than to put them out. It's like a 10 to 1 advantage. To put it that way, it sounds like my concern is not losing a debate, and that's absolutely not my concern. If you're going to view this as a debate, it's won almost immediately. But I worry about what people take from the encounter, and I just don't want to do additional harm to our public conversation about what is in fact an important public health concern and a growing political one. First, the asymmetry. The reason why there's such an asymmetry here is that it is just impossible to debunk most things in real time. And even if the point being made is in fact spurious, it won't seem spurious to 99% of an audience, right? So the person on the 
conspiracy theory side of things can say, well, what about the 14 CDC officials who resigned last week and wouldn't give reasons when asked? What do you make of that? Right now, there's probably nothing to be made of that, right? I didn't even hear about it. And tr the truth is, I just made that up. But when delivered in the context of a, quote, debate about these things, with someone who, whose whole angle is there's conspiracy everywhere, it can seem like, oh, you didn't know about that. Well, that's clearly a problem. You should look into that. What about the paper that just came out of Micronesia that showed ivermectin was 100% effective? I didn't see that paper out of Micronesia. Oh, you didn't. Well, okay, you should really do your homework. It's possible to just scatter a lot of dust in the eyes and ears of the audience and make it seem like there's so many anomalies out there. There's so many things that need to be explained. And if you're not going to explain those things, if you're not going to connect this particular pattern of dots, well, then you're just not doing the work. And, and that need not necessarily be done in bad faith. Of course, it can be, right? It's a tactic. But uh, that's not what I'm alleging Brett and Heather would do. I'm just saying that's the way they think now. It's such a scattershot approach to this. There's so little quality control around the kind of information they're putting forward. And it takes such an effort to chase it all down and debunk it. And anything that shows up that's new in the conversation can't be tracked down in real time. So I don't have much hope that a conversation would wind up producing a document that would be good for the world. Yeah. And here's the thing. Like, all right. It's bad enough that Sam is not already not wrong about like the larger thing, which is like COVID conspiracy theories are bad and dumb and dangerous. Uh, but I at least thought when I saw, you know, when Andy brought us the, the clip um, and I think he'd saw seen Sam Cedar talk about it. I think, I, I think that's, that's how uh came to his attention. Uh, he's not a regular, you know, Sam Harris, uh, you know, aficionado. As, as far as I know, but um, I at least thought, okay, well, uh, I am actually going to disagree with this because I knew that the point was that he was saying that he didn't want to debate Brett Weinstein about the COVID conspiracy theories. And I, I kind of thought, you know, that his reason would be the sort of standard reasons that people give to not debate conspiracy theorists that like, oh, you're like legitimizing it you know, or, or, or something like that. Uh, you know, you're treating it as if it's up for debate and that's bad. Uh, I actually do find all of that super unconvincing. I mean, obviously, right? I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't have been in Phoenix this weekend. Um, fun fact, actually, Charlie Kirk did. Uh, he, there was like a, a moment where he kind of hinted at, uh, at some conspiracy theory stuff about COVID. Uh, it was for like 20 seconds though. And I was thinking about, pick it up. I was like, yeah, this is really not what I want to argue about today. Right. You know, just, just let that, let that sail by, you know, but, uh, you know, let's, let's get back to the minimum wage and healthcare and all that stuff. But, um, uh, but I obviously do generally disagree with those sorts of reasons for not debating conspiracy theories or not debating anything else. I think that, uh, I think that the idea that we could make bad points of view go away by pretending they're not there, uh, yeah, I'm pretty skeptical 
I don't I don't think that that really would work. So I mean, sometimes maybe uh, for for things that are super marginal, in the sense that like hardly anyone believes them. But I, I think that for anything where you're already worried about a large number of people accepting something, I think just refusing to engage with it is generally a bad strategy. But I got to say, I mean, I don't know what you thought, Jake, but uh, watching this, thought, all right, well, he's, you know, he's doing a lot of his Sam Harris ticks about how he's presenting it, and that annoys me. But especially at the end when he said, yeah, like a, a virologist, sure, right? You know, like I'd like a virologist to debate Brett, but he's kind of right about this. Like, I, yeah. I yeah. No, he, he he definitely has a has a point um, when it when it comes to these uh, kinds of kinds of debates, right? Um, we we cut out that part of the clip, but you know he does say at the end that okay on, on issues right of uh, of public health or the vaccine, I'd rather have a virologist, uh, d- you know, debate uh, debate them. Um, but you know, I, I guess, but after your um, debate uh, with Mister uh, Charlie, I guess. You know, one thought is, is if you're able to focus debate on maybe there are, there are ways to have productive debates with these types of people and there are ways to not. Right. Um, so maybe he's yeah, painting no, I, with I, too broad of a brush there. As maybe yeah, the, I, the, the one. I, yeah, I, think, I think that might be right. I think that so on the one hand, like I'm actually pretty sympathetic, like on a personal level to what he's saying, because. I don't know. Somebody asked me to do a debate about COVID conspiracy theories. I might actually say exactly what he's saying just now. Like, don't don't debate me. Go 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 find you know an epidemiologist and you know and, and debate them because like, what the hell can I really I really say uh, that's that's going to be going toe to toe on the on the details, right? I think and I think it's good to kind of know your limits. But the reason that I'm ambivalent about it is that. I think even though I might very well say what he said here, and, and I think he definitely has a point about the ways that that debate can go very wrong and uh, and about how there are other people who might be better to, to have it. I, th- I think all of that stuff is true, right? But even so, um, the reason that I'm a little ambivalent is I think it's a mistake if people who aren't experts are never arguing with conspiracy theorists about this especially because like just to just to do a a a very goofy analogy uh apologies in advance but like in this case right there's no stopping the spread right i mean the the conspiracy theories are already everywhere uh like the at this point like you need to actually you know like you need to actually do some sort of treatment or vaccine or something like, you know, you can, you can't just hope to, to stop it with distancing. Uh, so uh, given that, I think, it, I think it is a mistake if everybody all the time, just who's not an expert, just says, no, 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 don't talk to me. Just talk to the medical experts, uh, especially because like a big part of why, um, of like what the conspiracy theorists are saying about this stuff is that you shouldn't trust uh, you know, whatever the medical establishment or something like that. And, and so I, I think probably it, it is good to do some debates with these people sometimes, but you want to be real careful about the ground, like, like the, the terrain on which you're having it, because I think what you need to do is just to be super honest about, look, 
I know you spend your entire life um, like glued to a computer, like reading, like, you know, like, like just coming up with like talking points and little bits and pieces of data, you know, that are supposed to support this conspiracy theory. I do not. Uh, and I'm not planning to start, you know, so like, I'm not going to say that I could go, like, I could tell you exactly what happened with this reporter, you know, or, or what about the study in France that shows this or that, like, you know, maybe. Right. But like he, Sam is right about the problem with doing factual debunking on the spot that like, Sometimes you could do a little bit of that in a debate, like especially if um, if it's like some super common talking point that you've heard a hundred times before and you kind of know it's going to come up. But like, really, what are you going to do? Just like stop while you Google it and, you know, and like uh, and look at it and say, well, that doesn't sound quite right. You'd Google a couple other things and like 10 minutes later, you'd have a good response. But like, you can't really do that in a, in a live debate, which is actually why I think generally the least interesting thing to do. In, in a live debate is, is to is to spend all of your time arguing about the empirical facts, uh, which, you know, you're you're not in a great position to do at that moment. And uh, people following along can't check right, right, like right that second, like without losing what you're saying, you know, you're much better off focusing on the arguments about how the different pieces connect. Uh, so I do think I do think that. Uh, but that said, uh, I think that like there is probably some some value in doing like a really open and honest debate with a conspiracy theorist where you acknowledge that you're not going to be able to follow them down all those rabbit holes. But what you argue about is like what's generally the best way of trying to figure out what's true about stuff like this. Uh, does it make sense to for everybody to quote unquote do their your own research? about incredibly complicated factual issues or does it actually make a lot more sense uh if you spend your you know to um have you know have a uh epistemic division of labor you know like some people can become experts on this thing they'll report back to me and some people become experts on that thing they'll report back and you know that doesn't mean that you have to uh take things absolutely on faith you know that if if you if like the the connections between the things that they're saying don't, don't make sense. We could argue about that, but generally speaking, are you better off when it comes to a purely factual issue? We're not talking about values. We're not talking about what we should do given these facts, but just like, what are the basic medical facts, right? Is it better to sort of try to cobble that together from some combination of, uh, you know, well, you know, you you know YouTube and uh, uh, and and you know Reddit uh, and uh, the Weinstein family, uh, or uh, or or is it better to try to figure out what the consensus is of people who actually spend their lives studying that? Yeah, I don't know, Ben. That's a good question. I'm I'm still doing my own personal research, and uh, <laughs> you know when I'm done, I'll, I'll I'll get back to you. But this could take some time. So uh. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> You know, and I mean, there's there are interesting questions here because, like, I think that a lot of liberals like take the core of what I just said and go way too far with it, and everything they want to be like a technocratic expertise issue, when really a lot of things are about conflicted interests and conflicted ideologies, and and so there is a there are questions about where to draw the the line there, but 
like if you're going to defer to experts about anything it should be like medical science no, and, and i and i face this and with arguing with uh you know anti-vaccine people i know that are coming from a good place you know um i've faced this too where it's like they're like i don't trust elites and i'm like i'm the, i'm right there with you right but i trust but i do trust uh these medical elites right so it, it does become a more nuanced uh conversation no that's right that's right but if you could have a conversation about that that like i think that's the terrain in which it might make sense to debate conspiracy theorists, not having a conversation about, oh, what about, you know, you know, do you hear about these results from about ivermectin in India? And, you know, what about, you know, this study, this one place that said that? And, you know, what about the, you know, the dissonance, you know, from the, you know, from the World Health Organization panel and whatever the fuck you've never heard of and I've never heard of? Like that probably is not productive. For that, I think Sam Harris, I hate to use these words in this order is probably right. Uh, but, uh, and, uh, but for the conversation, but I think it is probably productive to debate them on the topic of how is it that all of us as non-experts should try to figure these things out? When does it make sense to defer to experts? When doesn't it? I think that's probably useful. Also, though, uh, I, I know I should give, for the sake of equal time, I should give the, give the counter argument to my uh, claim that uh, before we go to the next segment, my claim that you shouldn't get your information about this from um, YouTube, uh, Reddit, and the Weinstein family. And the counter argument is that according to Brett Weinstein, his family's um, his family's insights, his his brothers, you know, I think there might be somebody else would have won them like twenty Nobel prizes if not for the uh, something called the distributed idea suppression complex. So uh, maybe you should actually get all your information about this from them after all. <laughs> All right, uh, we are going to bring on our very talented graphic designer, uh, Jay Andrew World, uh, and we are going to talk about what, uh, if it happens, could be uh, the biggest strike in the United States uh, in 14 years, I believe, so, no, seven years, anyway, quite, you know, some number of years, uh, I don't know. Uh, the uh, you know this is this is why you shouldn't get your information about these things from YouTube. Uh, but uh, I've 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 uh, my I'm questioning my mental arithmetic. But the biggest strike in a very long time. So uh, I think maybe to set this up, uh, there is a another video uh, that Andy uh, brought us. Uh, this one is uh, so it is from the animators portion. Of, uh, of of this union. Uh, maybe we should start off with that clip. Ah, what's going on? What's a strike authorization? What is IATSE? What's the MPTP? How does this affect me? Deep breaths. I'm your studio shop steward. Let me explain. IATSE is the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees and is made up of 12 districts that encompass the U.S. and Canada. Local 839, or more popularly known as the Animation Guild, or TAG, is a local of IATSE and part of District 2, which covers Arizona, California, Hawaii, and Nevada. IATSE bargains with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP, around every three years in order to sign a collective bargaining agreement, or CBA. The AMPTP is a trade association that represents American television and film production companies in collective bargaining negotiations within the entertainment industry. A collective bargaining agreement? Is that like a contract? 
Yuppers! The Collective Bargaining Agreement, or CBA, is a written legal contract between an employer and a union representing the employees. Why are they striking if they're still negotiating? A strike authorization is not a strike. It's a democratic vote of all members within a bargaining unit, or BU. A strike cannot happen unless there is a full strike authorization vote and at least 75% of members voting must agree for a vote to be successful. This is the members giving the union the power to strike if the union decides it is necessary to protect their members. Yeah, so uh, first things uh, first. Things first uh, that uh, So the, uh, the strike authorization vote uh, they, they're talking about, yeah, that video uh, happened. How did it go? It went really well. About 90% of the union showed up and about... Uh, uh it was like 94 percent, if i remember correctly uh i know there we go even higher even higher voted yes yeah i was going on the safe side 98.6 yeah 98.68 percent said yes with an 89.66 percent turnout which is massive um considering there are over sixty thousand members to this union <clears throat> you're, you're muted that is that is really amazing uh, like I, I think that given uh, the the general level, and I, I know some people might kind of tune out when they hear, okay, this is Hollywood, you know, whatever. But like, um, you know, we could get in maybe to to some of the the you know complaints of this workers. But I mean, I think I think the biggest thing is that think about the general level of the labor movement in the United States in uh year of our 2021 uh a um you know a, a strike by sixty thousand people would be uh would, would be a big thing we we are not uh those that is not the kind of thing that we are used to seeing no and it's it's super exciting because like the, these aren't just uh you know these are the people that make um uh, these productions possible. These these are um, not just the graphic designers, the animators, the storyboard artists, the um, uh, production designers, illustrators. You know, my brethren. Um, but but they also cover people who do lighting stuff, um, actual you know people who who run stage things and actual um, productions on that side of uh, things. Uh, video editors. Um, so so basically, it's 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 the people who make uh, the, you know these things happen. Uh, which which is a big deal, um, and it's super excited to, uh, to hear about this. Yeah, no, and I, I would just add, um, you know, just because it's a glamorous industry. I mean, as probably a lot of people know, that like the hours working on on film sets, right, are, are just ridiculous. Um, and uh, also, if people um, are are wanting to know a little bit about the conditions, learn a little bit more about the conditions that led to the strike, uh, Alex Press wrote a really good interview. Um, with a uh, television makeup artist talking about the the working conditions, and also what's interesting in this article is how you know COVID really did I think really did play a big role at least um, anecdotally in um, contributing to this kind of overwhelming strike vote. So in thinking about how uh, COVID is changing labor uh, labor conflicts on the ground, it's interesting to to see it already kind of bearing fruit. Yeah, can, can and, you? And you uh... Oh, sorry, uh, Jake, Jake. Can you uh, can you just expand on that a little bit? How COVID has played into this? 
Sure. Um, well, what they talked about in the article is that, you know, from a COVID, uh, well, there's two things. First, from a COVID safety perspective, I think, um, you know, they just uh, was very, very poor, right? Um, and that, you know, you, especially if you're doing makeup, you can imagine how difficult it is um, to really, you know, to really be uh, protected, right? Um, also, in terms of COVID compliance, uh, the the woman she interviewed discussed how uh, they made a joke like, yeah, I bet we're going to have some PA that we come on bringing minimum wage to do like an hour training course. And it's like, nope, that's what happened. <laughs> like exactly what they joked about, um, you know, so it's the compliance was, you know, a, a bit of a farce. And then the third, you know, the other part, which is um, with COVID and, and, and productions being shut down, people have some time maybe to think, is this the kind of life that I I want to lead, right? Um, and 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 they were all, you know, productions were shut down for a while. Um, and then she said a lot of people left, but then people that did come back, you know, they started to think, you know, not only am I coming back, but I'm also coming back into a dangerous situation, right? So we already see how COVID, uh, for many reasons, is causing tons of people to change careers, right? So this kind of reckoning in, in society, I guess, um, really rocked uh, the members of IATSE as, as well, um, you know, um, that's what I gather from the article so far, but definitely worth uh, checking out. Yeah, and, and I think, and I think just to just to maybe put a different kind of uh, emphasis on what you're saying, you know, like I kind of joked earlier, you know, some people hear Hollywood and tune out, you know, but it's like a it's a glamorous industry. That does not mean these are particularly glamorous jobs. No, and um, uh, CWA, the union I work for, we we recently or a couple of years ago organized uh, parking attendants who work on uh, you know television productions, like helping helping figure out the street parking and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean these are big television productions. They're talking about how you know they're um, you know peeing in bottles, and uh, I mean I, I you know um, just but much even worse than that. You know their their conditions were terrible. So if you think the top of the line, these the you know the the A listers are making millions of dollars, and the people who are actually holding it together, um, it's just as brutal as probably any other line of work, not worse in some instances. Yeah, and just two things. The uh, There is actually a great uh, Instagram page, which you couldn't access most of today because since Instagram was down, but go check that out um, where, where you can actually see uh, people actually tell these horror stories. Um, uh, and uh, the, the other thing too, is like, like, you know, there are people who really care about these people. Like, like for example, Danny Trejo, like in most interviews I've ever read of him he's always like you know why do i do these bad movies and so these these uh people who who work on the uh lower end stuff they, they have a job and, and like so he he you know um uh danny trejo and uh you know act, you know so, so some of these people actually really do care about you know the people that that uh that that are working on because they are shat on by people like you know um uh oh i can't think of that that producer that just came out where where he was like apparently abusive uh to his employees um who worked with Aaron Sorkin, but you know, it was like, there's tons of stories like this, you know, that's just one of many, you know, whether it be Weinstein, cause Weinstein's terrible, no matter what Weinstein family we're talking about or, or whatever, <laughs> um, that they're going to be, yeah, the, 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 whole, the Hollywood one is actually worse than the conspiracy of Duke one, but yes, <laughs> none, none of them are good. No, no, I have nice to meet a good, I would like to meet a good Weinstein, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, uh, but but anyways, the um, uh, you know the, the there's a lot of abuse in Hollywood, uh, and these are the people who get the abuse uh, piled onto them, for the most part. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so there is a petition I know that you can sign. 
uh, they they are still looking for non-member you know support to you know to just kind of show how uh, how widespread that is. We'll try to find the link to that and uh, stick it in the episode description. Uh, and and we'll we'll generally uh, we will generally keep tabs on this. Uh, I actually heard about this the first time I was um, you know having. Uh, like actually, after the show last week, I uh, had a uh, had a you know FaceTime whiskey with my uh, uh, younger brother, who is a screenwriter uh, among other things, and he uh, and he was he was telling me uh, about about this and and you know kind of putting it in a context of a lot else that's that's going on there. The um, uh, DSALA has actually been like kind of shockingly uh, politically effective in a lot of ways, uh, you know. You know, uh, in terms of going after city council races and stuff. So uh, the in uh, you know, good things happening uh, in uh, in La La Land, and uh, with any luck, uh, some measure of justice uh, for uh, for these uh, these workers who are uh, you know peeing into bottles to uh, to get the uh, uh, you know keep the gears moving. You know, for uh, for those shows. All right. Uh, so, uh, last thing I want to do before we go to the interview, uh, with, uh, one of our favorite guests, uh, Lillian Sikertia, uh, is, uh, I want to talk about, um, the, the class, uh, that, uh, that I am teaching for the next eight Sundays at Michael Albert's, uh, School for Social and Cultural Change, uh, the name of the class is Analytic Marxism and the Materialist Theory of History. Uh, and this is something uh, that actually I, I get into this a little bit in the interview with Lillian. Uh, I, I have, uh, I, I actually started thinking about this a little bit more because I was writing this book about Christopher Hitchens, which which is kind of a weird uh, connection. Uh, but um you know, I, I was kind of thinking about what was wrong with some of the late Hitchens stuff about uh, new atheism. And and I think that a lot of what's wrong with it is that even though, weirdly enough, even after he kind of abandoned socialist politics, Hitchens continued to claim to believe in the materialist theory of history. Uh, in a lot of ways, the new, you know, the new atheism stuff was the furthest thing imaginable from the materialist theory of history. It was, you know, what's, you know, like the subtitle of, of uh, Hitchens's 2008 book, God is not great, how religion poisons everything, right? That like what's doing the poisoning isn't economic structures, it's the ideas in people's heads. And thinking about that a little bit more, uh, maybe really want to do a deep dive into what one of my very favorite philosophers, uh, Jerry Cohen, G.A. Cohen, uh, had written about this topic. Uh, he has this classic book uh, called Karl Marx's Theory of History, a defense, uh, and it's it's very uh, it's very clear. He uh, he is uh, he's a very uh, like he's a very very good writer, especially for an academic philosopher. Uh, and uh, and he he has this great thing in the introduction where he talks about uh, some of the experiences that got him to try to. Ex, you know, argue for and explicate, you know, what he took to be the core of Marx's theory of history in a little bit of a different way than they usually are. Uh, because, you know, he says, uh, he says in there, uh, you know, that, I mean, Cohen is somebody who grew up in the, uh, this kind of working class Jewish communist household in Montreal, 
you know, like grew up going to like this, like, uh, this like communist uh, elementary school until it was raided uh, by the uh, the Montreal up uh, like police red squad uh, and, uh, and shut down. So, you know, he, he came out of those roots, but then, you know, he ended up studying at Oxford, doing analytic philosophy. And, and he kind of talks in that introduction about the way that, you know, he wanted to like do this, no bullshit version of the Marxist theory of history where you don't just sort of say this cloud of verbiage that sounds sort of impressive, but you're really, really clear about what your arguments are. And, you know, what's the claim? Why should anybody believe this? What are some distinctions we can make? And he talks about going from like writing like a poet who, you know, sort of writes down anything that sounds good to, to writing like that. Right. And I think the book really comes out of that. So uh, in this course, uh, the the class sessions are going to be on Sunday afternoons EST because that's the time uh, that's best for um, so yeah one to three EST because that's the time that's best for people in a variety of time zones. If you're in California, it's ten in the morning, which is not too bad. Uh, if you're in the UK, it's six at night, which is still not too bad uh, when it uh, when it starts. Um, but uh, so, you know, it's going to be the next eight Sundays starting, starting next Sunday. People can sign up for that at SSC, SSCC, School for Social and Cultural Change, SSCC.teachable.com. Uh, and in the conversation you're about to watch with Lillian, uh, she is the Free University of Berlin. So speaking of time zones, she could not do <laughs> an interview at nine at night, our time. That's why this is pre-recorded. Um, and... In the interview, like we do a really deep dive, and I know this is like two episodes of like pretty heavy Marxist theory stuff in a row after Vivek Chipper last time. Uh, we'll, you know, I promise we'll do an episode on James Lindsay or something soon, but you know, uh, but, uh, but we do a pretty deep dive on the stuff uh, that basically on the debates going on right now within Marxists about the theory of history. Like a lot of this is stuff that happened since Cohen wrote the book and is kind of informed by the book, but like, you know, about people sort of saying, okay, on reflection, he's given this really, Cohen has given this like really clear explication of the kind of classic version of the Marxist theory of history. And having made it this clear, can we now see that there are problems? If there are problems, are there ways to fix them while still retaining the basic insights of the theory, and that's what we're doing a deep dive on in this conversation. But what I'd like to urge, and not just as a plug for my class, uh, is that uh, you, you gotta, you know, you gotta crawl before you can walk. Uh, you know that, you know, if you want to be in a position to like really understand the stuff well enough to 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 weigh in in a good way on the kinds of debates that I'll be previewing with Lillian, you got to start by having a good handle on like the classic form of the Marxist theory of history, uh, which is, I think, what Cohen really gives you and what we're going to be getting into uh, in, in the class. You know, we're going to be doing the first half of the book. Um, you know, I'd be very open to doing an advanced class. We'll go through the second, but, you know, I, I just want to make sure we have time to, like, really go through all the arguments in there and make sure everybody's everybody's getting it. Uh, so uh, so that's, that's, the, that's the classic version. And once you've done the reading... Uh, you can you can have an opinion in the uh, in the subsequent discussion. So uh, that is my be best pitch. Remember, uh, after we finish 
watching the pre-recorded interview. Uh, the episode will um, almost certainly go a little bit later than we like to, but that's okay. We had a lot of stuff to get to in the first part. Um, once we finish uh, watching the pre-recorded interview with Lillian, we will be back live for the philosophy segment uh, with Professor Burgess, which will be for the next weeks. Is teaching philosophy to Charlie Kirk, parts one, two, and three. Uh, and uh, and then after that, in the post game for GTW patrons, uh, we are going to have on uh, John Palmucci Jr., uh, better known to Twitter users as Gabagool Marks, uh, who is the man behind uh, one of my favorite uh, Facebook pages. There's also a Twitter version, uh, which is Socialist Sopranos Memes. Uh, and is exactly what it sounds like. So uh, we are going to be talking uh, in that post game, as well as you know, uh, as well as doing a little bit more of an informal discussion of uh, some of the funnier things that happened last weekend. Uh, and there's also a thing about people protesting Dave Smith's comedy sets that we want to get into. But uh, the main thing we're going to do is we are going to talk about social Sopranos memes. We're going to look at a lot of the memes, some of which were really cracking me up like as we're preparing the graphics uh, for the post game. Uh, and uh, most importantly, we are going to find out whether John liked the many saints of Newark. So uh, all that stuff is coming up, you know, so interview philosophy segment, then we'll go to the post game and talk Sopranos. All right. Uh, now joined once again uh, by Lillian Sikertia, uh to talk about um, what I've been uh, spending way too much time thinking about lately, uh, the materialist theory of history. Thanks so much for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben, and I'm happy there are people who might be interested in the materialist theory of history, so. Yeah, well, you know, that's 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 the hope. You know, nobody's nobody's just skipping past this, you know, this interview, we'll see all right, what happens at the end. Right. Uh, yeah, so. I think, like, uh, you'd actually sent me a uh, podcast that uh, that you'd recorded, I think, for a class that you were doing, uh, yeah. uh, talking to, uh, to Brenner about some of this stuff, uh, and, uh, and I listened to a good bit of that, and, and I thought that was really interesting, but I, I want to kind of start by taking a couple of big steps back and thinking about... Oh, are about, you talking about the conversation I had with... Uh, Robert Brenner? Yes. Oh. Yes. Yep. Yep. That's the one. Um, but uh, so I, I do want to get to some of the stuff that's covered there, but I think probably a useful way to start this is that I think that there might be some people who you know watch this or listen to it as a podcast later who, you know, are obviously, you know, interested enough in socialist politics to listen and uh, who have you know like and are at least inclined enough and you know in, in nerdy intellectual directions that this is the podcast where they're listening to it uh and have at least a vague idea that uh that marx's theory of history has something to do with thinking that you know material something or other are you know of uh, have a like primary role in driving things forward but ha but you know might not know much more than that and, and, and i do want to make sure that, that the person i've just described you know is is on board so i think that the like 
more the original version, you know, Marx's version of the theory of history, which is what like G.A. Cohen is trying to capture in the, the book, Karl Marx's theory of history. And, you know, we can, there are arguments about exactly who met what by what. And, you know, cause of course there are, there always are, but like basically at least certainly the kind of Engels second internationally kind of understanding of that theory is what you get in a particularly clear way in Cohen. So maybe a good place to start out would be by kind of going over a little bit, like what the, uh, you know, let's say again, the materialist theory of history classic is. Yeah. Okay. So I think that like, there's a, there's an even more like fundamental level in which you can talk about the theory of history, because like when we talk about the theory of history or the philosophy of history, there's so much loaded into this, both politically and philosophically. And, um, and Cohen has, like you said, a really um, particular way of uh, elucidating things that were implicit in the socialist movement for a long time. And I think it's important for people to understand that when he writes this book in 1978, the view that he is espousing as the orthodox view is already on its way out. Like Marxists have already seen the problems with it and they're already contending with it and they're not accepting it anymore and that's why he's calling it a defense um so there's like this whole background of debate and i think to understand like why you should care about this which is a theory that not many people today agree with it's that it it's how you think about history sort of determines how your relationship to the future like what you think happened in the past and how the logic and how it works depends how you is going to determine something not absolutely, but it's going to say something about how you think you need to act and orient towards the future. And um, the current common sense right now is that Cohen's theory is really wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but Marxists think it's wrong and redeemable. Like it's wrong in some fundamental arguments it makes, but they don't think materialism is wrong. And they don't think that the idea of class struggle is wrong. The Marxist theory of history has progressed quite a long way since Cohen wrote this book, um, but you wouldn't know that. So if you go into an undergraduate seminar or you read any book like about history or that you know dunks on Marxism in the past 50 years, you're gonna see them saying things like, oh my God, how obvious that these three main points are wrong, Marxism is dead. Um, and the problem is, is that there hasn't been anyone um, to do what Cohen did again now, given what we now know. So that's kind of how I would situate it. It's a really important book, but it's um, something that it wasn't like just accepted at the time as the Marxist theory of history. And I think the basic idea here is that he endorsed the idea of technological determinism. Okay, and that's the idea that the um, technology that we use in the fancy Marxian language, it's called the productive forces. Okay, the technology, the raw materials, the stuff with which we produce our lives. Mm -hmm. This is, um, this is going to determine something about the social relationships that are going to take a certain form because of the level of technology, the level of the productive forces. And to explain how social transformation happens, the Orthodox view accepts not only technological determinism, but a functionalist explanation 
for social change. So if you're wondering how do we get from one social form to another, whether it's from uh, feudalism or a peasant producing society to capitalism, and then maybe, and this was the hope, capitalism to socialism, you have to say, okay, at some point, the social organization, the productive relations, the organization of society, it's going to not fit so well with the existing technology. We're going to increase labor productivity so much. We're going to automate things. Um, we're going to be pressed together into these factories, into these workplaces. And we're going to realize that we can do it better ourselves. And so then we can initiate a transformation from capitalism to feudalism. And the, the reason that the first two steps lead to a third step, which is teleology, okay, so is because you have to kind of think that there's an internal momentum or logic to transformation. So the three elements of the orthodox theory of history are technological determinism, a functionalist explanation for social change, um, and teleology, that there's a direction to that social change. Yeah, so let, let's maybe pause and try to break down some of those a little bit more. So, mm -hmm. um, so the, the technological determinism, uh, what that, you know, like what that means is that the development of, of the productive forces, of, of the, the capacity of a society to produce things, uh, roughly. You know, we can, yeah. we can nitpick that, but like, let's, let's just yeah. let that go. Uh, the, you know, the capacity of society to produce things, that that is the sort of primary thing that then leads to changes in the relations of production. So, you know, whether people are peasants and lords or workers and capitalists or, you know, or whatever. And then the, the functionalism comes in, because, well, actually because um, the view is that in some way, once the development of the forces becomes a problem for relations, that causes uh, the, the change in, in systems. Um, and, and do you want to break down a little bit like what you mean when you call that, um, you know, just because, you know, inshallah, not everybody listening is an academic, uh, they, uh, you know, like what you mean when you call that a, a functionalist view, like what's, 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 what's functionalist about it? What does that mean? Right. So the, the, um, the, I think the simplest way to define a functionalist explanation is that it says, so I'll just, I'll say it analytically and then I'll put it into ordinary language. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that X explains Y because X keeps Y intact. Right. Okay. So the um, production, the, so the idea is that in this case, that the relations of production are required or needed by the system because they are going to facilitate the best use of the productive forces. They're going to be the optimal way of realizing our capacity to um, reproduce life. Like labor productivity is very important in the story. How many units of output can you produce with labor in a certain amount of time? And, uh, Pre-capitalist societies, it wasn't very much. Now it's an astronomical amount of stuff we can make in a very small amount of time. So we have a way of organizing ourselves that is conducive to realizing the potential and the capacity of the productive forces. Peasants couldn't do it, but people in factories can, for example. Um, so the productive relations are uh, 
explained because they are uh, useful or needed by, in other words, functional for the productive forces to realize their potential. And this is the argument he spends, Cohen spends a great deal of time in the book, a couple chapters, um, defending the plausibility of this argument. And I think um, it's probably one of the main weaknesses, but did that break it down? um, Yeah, so that's that's good. So, uh, and, all right, so so we've got so we've got the first two elements. There's the technological determinism, which just means that the big thing driving all of this uh, is the development of the the productive forces, roughly technological change. So societies roughly. can, yeah, you know that um, the you know <coughs> ability of societies to produce more stuff because they're producing it. You know, they're producing it differently, which might have to do with technology or might have to do with, you know, with, with just the way things are being organized, which is the complicated part, because like that sounds like now we're talking about relations. But the uh, but like just just the way that the actual stuff is being organized, like Cohen has an analogy in the book where he says that there's a in this sense, right, like uh, it's being organized in the same way in a factory farm in Indiana and a collective farm in the Ukraine. Right, you know, because like the actual way that the production is happening is the same. The the relations of production are, are different, but you know, the way the production is happening uh, is the same. So it's the development of that way from the way it happens in you know family farms or whatever up up until that in that in that example that it's that kind of change that's right. that, that's yeah. fundamentally propelling everything forwards. So that's the technological determinism part, and then. The functionalism is that there is a way in which that um, that going forward uh, is is going to explain, uh, you know, that the the way it, you, you put it really well at the end, but I've, I've lost it. The uh, the uh, you know the the last the last little the last little bit felt like a really nice non technical way to say this. You know, uh, can, you, can you say that again? I can. I might have forgot what I said as well. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, I, I think that like the one thing like if if you're interested in reading more about this, like, and you want to get into some of the just the, the way Marxists argue, there are lots of little hidden functionalist arguments. This is the big one. This is like the big central theory of history. But we use them all the time, and they're usually our weakest arguments. So that's why it's good to point them out. Like. Um, when you see words like capitalism needs such yeah, and yeah. such to sustain itself, or capitalism uh, maintain, like this is happening because it maintains um, a capitalist's ability to accumulate or exploit, or this um, ensures that accumulation can proceed unhindered. This is all like it's the same idea. Like when you think that basically something is happening because it's going to secure um, the current way of of reproducing social life at what used to be called the the, the base. So it's kind of like the social relations relations are the glue that allows that enables the base to keep going, and they're like that because they um, facilitate that development of the productive forces and importantly the way that you explain change when that stops happening is at some point according to the orthodox theory 
um, and you have to take a leap of faith to think this, but they thought that at some point those relations stopped becoming suitable. They become a, uh, Marx uses the word fetter and Cohen will use that word too. They become a fetter on the productive forces where suddenly it becomes evident that you could do things differently with the same level of labor productivity, with the same technology, with the same raw materials. And capitalism is the relationships of exploitation, the bureaucracy, the state, all the things we um, you know, know and loathe. Like these are the things that suddenly they're going to become they're going to they're going to become hindrances and we're going to see that and we're going to initiate a transformation to a different uh, way of doing things. And the reason I say you have to take a leap of faith is because, well, that didn't happen in a lot of in anywhere but Russia or, you know, and so, I mean, there's a couple other it's right. Revolutions are disputable, but like yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, a, there's, a, there's a way in which like you have to think, aha, it happened before. So it's going to happen again. And that's like it happened with feudalism to capitalism. When's our next step? And that's where you start making your leap of faith and what usually ends up being like a projection of your uh, analytical and explanatory hopes and dreams onto empirical reality that may or may not, may not work out. Yeah, I like that. So uh, I think that, uh, right. So I mean, like the, the, the way that sounds sort of like, I think the most... Uh, the example, you know, obviously probably that makes this most plausible. In fact, um, you know, that's probably the example, you know, that, that makes it, you know, that, that makes it seem plausible is that if I talk this way, that functionalist way that is, you know, that, well, uh, this, this set of, you know, of productive relationships serves a, a function for the development of, of the productive forces. And I say that, um, in fact, I, I think I uh, do say somewhere, probably in a really overly crude and uh, you know uh, way, that uh, that like the transition from like a mostly agrarian society to uh, to you know to having like uh, to to contemporary you know industrial you know society was facilitated by having peasants no longer be bound to, to the land you know mm -hmm. so they could like move around and you know go into cities and you know and and as different capitalist labor needs happen you know they, they could do that mm -hmm. that sounds sort of plausible and we all kind of feel like we know what it means to say that that you know to, to say that uh, yeah. but but then again as you say we do this all the time in these smaller contexts, and those are oftentimes, like they roll off the tongue real easily, but like they, 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 you know, but like those are oftentimes the ones that are, for very good reasons, the least convincing to people who are the least, um, you know, the least soaked in this way of talking, you know, that, uh, that oh, we yeah. have, you know, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever social phenomenon you're trying to explain, racism, whatever, you know, that's like, well, capitalism needs that because of such and such. And anybody who's skeptical about that, the the first, you know, questions they're going to ask are, well, hold on, but like, wh like, what's the actual chain of causal oh, effect here? Yes, what's the causal mechanism that does that? Um, and and also, like, did it? You know, like, there's this way in which functionalism. Here's my thing about it. I think that functionalism is a symptom of people who overextend a social theory beyond the limits of current existing knowledge in order to kind of group 
phenomena together and to generalize about things that they actually don't have the capacity to explain. And it does seem plausible. I mean, in a certain way, like, it's not like, it. I don't want to um, be completely diminutive, because it's actually generated quite a lot of historical research. And it might be like, um, you might want to contend with it um, today, but it's not like this was a stupid idea. Like the reason it's so what you're saying is like, it seems sensible. Like you think, you know, what keeps the system going? Um, we don't really, you know, like, it seems like there's all of these things that um, make it ha So for example, take racism as an example. Um, people with functionalist arguments have historically said that capitalists need to divide and conquer the working class in order to better exploit them. Exploit them. Um, so this is never convincing to people who emphasize the causation of race as an independent variable because the answer is why race and why not something else? Why this right. thing? What was the mechanism that produced this thing? But at a certain level of abstraction, it does seem plausible to say that, well, a divided working class is complete, is weaker. So mm -hmm. at some point, this particular thing emerged and it served that purpose. So it's not a stupid argument, but it has this flaw of exactly what you said, how? And there's a, there's a leap between that abstract generalization and the knowledge required to fill it that makes it kind of circular, like you're presupposing the thing that you should want to explain, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. So I mean, maybe like just on a kind of simplistic level, one way to think about this is that when you're uh, started to think about this stuff, if you say things like that, uh, a like a very common kind of snotty response is, oh, what, like everybody's sitting around in a big like room smoking cigars and plotting <laughs> for, you know, about how they're going to do this. Uh, you know, that that's that's dumb, you know, uh, that's that's like a conspiracy theory. And it feels very sophisticated to say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not doing, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing conspiracy theory. I'm doing structural analysis that, you know, that you don't need to have human attention. You know, you, like you don't need to have like conscious attention by anybody. You, you could just, <laughs> it serves this, it serves this, this interest for the system. And, you know, I'm talking about systems and structures and that, that, that sounds good, but there's maybe a higher level at which like the original question comes back and it's like actually a pretty good question. Like, okay. So if there's no smoke filled room, then you kind of, like you can't just say structure a bunch of times. Like you, you need to actually tell me like what is, what are the steps by which uh, they're this serving this, this function for the system actually causes it to happen. Yeah. Okay. So you're an analytic philosopher. I'm going to try an argument out on you that I've never told anyone before. Are you ready? And I feel, I feel like it might, it might, it it, tell, yeah. Tell me if it hits and if it doesn't. So you know Hempel's dilemma, right? Yeah, you um, that is. Yeah, I'll say what that is. So there's this argument in analytic in philosophy of science mm -hmm. that everything that happens is a natural phenomenon. Everything is physical. There's no such thing as a non-physical substance, an ideal substance. And if we were to just have all like a, a, a idea of a, ideal physics, like if we were to have all of the knowledge of an ideal uh, physical science, like it, like if we had worked everything out um, and exhausted the limits of our knowledge of physics, then we would be able to explain everything using only the terms of physics. And Carl Hempel 
looked at this argument and he was like, listen, first of all, that's knowledge that's currently outside the scope of our, like we don't have an ideal physics, so we can't, we can't use it. So that sucks for us. And so what you're saying is like, it could be true what you're saying, but it doesn't matter because it's empty of content. Like we don't have that future ideal knowledge. Um, and so like in a certain way, functionalism tends to be kind of empty. It leaves that gap that you're talking about the how. And if that analogy makes sense, I think that's like basically the problem um, that it doesn't satisfy us because we don't have the, the building blocks to fill it in. And even so it's not that functionalism is straightforwardly wrong or like in logically invalid or something like that. It's not satisfying. And that matters. And that's why, you know, if you've noticed, Marxists aren't able to convince people using those arguments. They are quick right. to be like, well, what up? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's kind of a problem. Right. Yeah. So, so you do, and one way, I, I do want to get to the teleology, but I mean, one, one way of kind of seeing, like, underlining the problem is, or maybe just, maybe just put it in a different way, is like, Things happen because of specific things that that like cause you know cause them to happen at specific moments in time, and things happen in human societies because actual specific people like do things at at, at, at given times, right? Like if your um, if your explanation of uh, of the war in Iraq uh, is you know, something about, you know, capitalism and imperialism and whatever your theory of imperialism is and all that stuff. It's like, okay, sh sure, maybe, right? But also this happened because like specific people made specific decisions at specific times and, uh, you know, Bush did such and such and Cole Powell did whatever and to, and to connect that, right, to the larger thing, like you, you need to... Um, like, like you need to be able to explain how it is that the larger thing means that the immediate thing happens. Yeah, I think that you said something important, which is that you have to be able to make sense of intentionality. And, and functionalism adopts, or functionalist explanations adopt this kind of, ex, this way of talking about human behavior that is like kind of evacuates it of uh, human agents like who have ideas and are doing things intentionally they're working together they're working apart they're competing with one another indeed sometimes bosses actually do get together in the smoky back rooms and and plan um like counterattacks on workers movements i mean like the the one the interesting thing about it is is you said that you know you don't want to have a conspiratorial view and i i agree no one wants that but it makes you actually disavow some kind of common sense stuff. Like that does actually happen. Right. Or like bosses do We're actually, they, they form manufacturers associations. Like if they right. face not as much anymore, cause they don't face that much resistance, but when they do, they get together, they get together and they plan and they'll plan. Like, you know, I read this great book. I wish I could run the last name of the author is Kelly and it might be Brian Kelly. It's about the Alabama coal miners um, strikes from like 1912 to 1921. And he talks about like, listen, we like to act like, oh, it can't be a conspiracy, the bosses, but look at how these people attacked them. And they had a strategy and they were intentional about it. And you can't make sense of that. If you talk about structures, like, oh, it doesn't matter what the individuals um, involved are trying to do. So in some way you can't even talk about like the, the common sense parts of it, if, if that's your perspective. Um, 
and then, yeah. So I think that that's like the, the, an important thing because really like history is driven by actual people and you have to be able to talk about those people and why they're doing what they're doing. And the tough part and what makes a Marxist perspective, I think explanatorily powerful, but also more difficult than other ways of thinking about history is you want to, and I think you can explain how this all aggregates to being a system. Like Marxists are not individualists. We don't think it's just individuals. We are, we want to talk about, um, and where shape calls it statistical thermodynamics. Like we want to talk yeah, yeah, about, yeah. you know what I mean? So yeah, we yeah, can there, do there, that. There is still, right. You do still want to have, like if this is still going to be a version of a materialist theory of history, like some sense in which, uh, uh, Vivek Shiver was on the show last week, and you know, and, and he, he said like the the like, uh, you know, and he had some sort of like NRA analogy. You know, people don't make history; classes make history. You know, like uh, like 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 you do still want there to be important sense in which in which that's true. Uh, which you know, uh, I mean, or or I mean, I think there is an important sense uh, in, uh, in in which in which that's true. Which is why trying to make sense of some kind of materialist theory of history you know, is, is a worthwhile, you know, is a worthwhile thing to do, but, um, but like that, uh, so it's going to add up to that, that bigger structural explanation, but like the adding up is not trivial. Like that's the, like, like, like you really, you really do need a theory of that. Like, like how that's it is. how you explain things, you know? So, and that's our goal is not to, is not to, um, kind of like feel confident that we already know we need to be able to explain things. And, and I think that like, it's really odd that Marxists today can be, I think I'd say people are split. There's a, uh, insofar as there is a Marxist little mm. uh, ecosystem of thinkers and activists, some people are aware that functionalism is a problem. And I think there's been a lot of progress made, but I think other people are like in a different, like there's different, there's adjacent debates and I think some people are not as clear that this is a problem and because they're focused as focused on other angles of Marxist theory. And then this is just my opinion. It gets reproduced even when there's other interesting in innovations. Like in my opinion, um, social reproduction theory is like this. Like I'm very interested in socialist feminist uh, re social reproduction theory. I think there's a lot of strengths, you know, explaining how gender oppression evolves. But if you don't kind of take this that like but that's also it's a part of a theory of history and what i notice is that if you don't kind of like confront these problems i just start seeing it reappear again and again and again and i'm like but hold on like you guys we did like 40 years ago we like lisa vogel you know she wrote the book that kind of set the terms for this she was already aware of functionalism but this is kind of what happens like the good ideas don't always get the opportunity to be fleshed out because we're you know we're not the dominant view so we don't get as so we kind of have to self monitor, like, are you giving the strongest possible argument or are you? Just... Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, you have to, yes. Right. If you, if you are a distinct minority view, you know, it, it, right. it's not a, it's not a good idea, you know, to just sort of rest on your laurels. It's like, oh, this seems basically right. You know what we mean? Like, you know, like we don't really have to spell this out that much or like try to, you know, yeah. try to like think about how to make it persuasive. It's tempting uh, to like gesture. Yeah, we all, we all kind of know, but the problem, do we, I, you know, yeah. and at a certain point that starts to haunt you, I think where you're like, hold on, wait, do we know? I don't know. Do you know? And then, you know, and so that's, yeah. 
Yeah. So I actually do want to go back just for a second to the Hempel's dilemma thing. So I want to make sure I understand your point about that. So <laughs> yeah. the, the, the original, so the original dilemma is like if somebody wants to say they're a, a physicalist about something, minds or whatever, you know, that they'll, that, uh, that that thing is is ultimately going, you know, like the, the sort of complete accurate theory of that thing is going to be in physical terms. And then you ask the annoying follow-up question, what do you mean by physical terms? And it seems like the two obvious things that you could mean is in terms of the kinds of stuff that is that is studied, the kinds of entities that are mentioned in the physics we have right now, or in the like ideal physics that we have that like omniscient beings would have, or that like we, we, we have, you know, at the, at the end of time when we figured everything out. Uh, and, and if it, if it's that we could explain minds or we could explain whatever it is we're trying to explain in terms of the entities, the kinds of entities that are like mentioned in physical theories that we have right now, then, you know, that it seems like the appropriate response is really, Right, that doesn't seem like no, it, right? Because, right. <laughs> like, right. like, you know, how does that work, right? I mean, like, it, it doesn't really seem like we can, you know, explain it in terms of the stuff that we that we know about right now. But if you say uh, we can explain it um, in terms of other stuff that we'll learn about in the future, that the whole thing, you know, you said earlier it was empty, but you know, but just just to be just to be really clear about why, right? Why that's empty? It's like it's it's empty because. Um, like that's just like at that point, like physics. Like all right, so like that's like the the category physical includes anything that uh, anything that we'll ever use to explain this. You know, it's like sure, whatever ultimately explains this, we'll ultimately explain it. That's that's a that's a super duper uninteresting claim. Right, and you know, to like, I think the, the okay, maybe this analogy does work. I'm really excited about it, but. <laughs> Maybe um, because Marxists have like run the gamut of all the ways they can try to fill fill it in. Like they've used psychoanalysis. The most dominant one is ideology. Like if we can't explain why something's happening, it's like oh, people have false consciousness, or there's ideal, you know, state apparatuses, repressive ideologies, or it's like psychological drives, or you know. So we we've done it all, um, and I think that like it's it's worth wondering you know, why things have to go in that direction. If functionalism is kind of your starting point, then there's an incentive to like mishmash and like fill things in and never quite answer the original question, which is why are people doing one thing instead of something else? Like this is something that I think Eric Wright gets really, um, really right when he says that what you're talking about when you when you try to explain things is your that's that's the question. Why are they doing this and not some other thing? And if you don't have like a, a kind of counterfactual hanging over your head, like, okay, yeah, why this kind of racism instead of some other kind of exclusion, you know, or why is it this kind of family form instead of something else? If you're not asking yourself those questions and you're just going to be able to say, aha, you know, capitalism needs the nuclear family because it has to support the worker do to do to do. And then at some point, working class marriage rates collapse and you're like, wait, did it need the nuclear family? Maybe it didn't. So, the, so this is, if you don't kind of have, um, if you don't discipline the, the inquiry or your thoughts to think of alternative paths of development, you know, why is it this logic that's emerging in this place as opposed to something else? Then I think that's 
yeah, that's one way of not answering the question. Yeah, right, exactly. So, um, so it, it seems like, yeah, maybe, maybe a way to, to, to run that is there's uh, either we can, you know, either we can explain things in terms of why they serve a certain function for, for capitalism or a certain kind of function for the development of the forces of production or whatever. Uh, either that means, you know, we can, we can explain it uh, in terms of, of like that directly, in which case it seems like now we really can't, uh, or, uh, or we, you know, or there's like a bunch of other stuff that might itself somehow be explained by that, you know, that, 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 explains it but like the further the further you go in that direction like the the sketchier the connection to the original claim starts to sound i think so and then when it becomes evident that it doesn't work out then it's inevitable like to me that the weaknesses of this are um a part of the precursor to people like stop being thinking that there are systems and system logics at all because if you can't tell a convincing causal story or have a theory of social reproduction or a theory of transformation that isn't empty in the sense we were talking about, then people are like, huh, maybe the system's like, maybe there is no system. Maybe all of this other stuff is just happening just because, and we need to just pay attention to what's happening and not even try to explain it. Yeah. Um, could, all, all explanations are at a micro level. There really is nothing we could, we could say yeah. at the level that like, you know, materialist theory of history is supposed to be pitched. Exactly. So it attempts, so like, for example, in the social sciences, as I understand it, there's a, like, people are focused on, um, like, small theories, like, uh, theories that don't, like, they don't do theories of history, they explain concrete things, they're not trying to overextend themselves. And I think it's a reaction to this sort of, sort of thing. Um, in philosophy, like, we hardly talk about history at all, like, we, we think it's like, it might be, um, we think it's futile or there is no logic to history or history is only um, kind of random occurrences or dispersions or it's not yeah, well, in discourse. Well, well, you put this really nicely in that greater podcast we were talking about before that, uh, I mean, to, to slightly paraphrase what you said, like one reason maybe like why uh, philosophers oftentimes aren't really that attracted to materialist views of history is that um, it's, you know, like these are explanations, like, you know, you might have, of course, historically lots of philosophers have liked idealist views of history. Uh, and, you know, I would argue even a lot of people who don't think they have a, they have a philosophy of history basically have an idealist philosophy of history, but you know, that, that's just, cool. uh, you know, but um, like everything that, you know, like lots of people who are, you know, who are contemporary philosophers who, you know, want to think about you know philosophy of race or of gender or whatever like if you if you listen hard to what they're saying it's all you know like they're they're explaining phenomena in terms of in terms of the ideas in people's heads uh but like the point you made on there is like but you can kind of see why like there's not a lot of attraction to materialist theories of history because this is the theory of you know because then it's like either you're just not going to be interested in theories of history or you're going to want to go in an idealist direction because otherwise like what are you going to say about it? Because this is a theory of history in terms of that annoyed empirical stuff. That's the opposite of, uh, of what you do when you do philosophy. I'm going to put it slightly differently. Yeah. I think that the reason philosophers are not attracted to materialism is that materialism is harder. 
Mm. When it comes to idealism, they just have to read. And it takes a lot of time. It's a lot of hard, hard work. But you read, you interpret, um, you try to find thought patterns, you reconstruct them. Okay? And, and that's, it's, it's not that that's not difficult work in mm. itself. But it, what I mean by it's harder is that in order to be convincing as a materialist, you have to know what is going on. That's what, that's what Brenner always says. You have to know what is going on, as it were, which means that you have to have some interdisciplinary knowledge. And not only do you have to have interdisciplinary knowledge, um, some, some basic interdisciplinary knowledge, you know, one person can only do so much unless you're Marx or Adam Smith or what, one of these people who just didn't do anything but attain a certain interdisciplinary knowledge. But the, you have to try to learn to think like people in other disciplines, so that when you see arguments, you're able to say, this is a good argument or a bad argument, or this is more better supported or, mm. or not. And that's something you have to know something a little bit about the, the different methods people are using. And so, and that's, that's harder. You have to be, you have to have a certain confidence in the facts because you've been able to make judgments about how to interpret them. And um, fundamentally, I think, that's what makes materialism unattractive because doing all of that is a lot. It's not very sound footing for a philosopher to, to be on. And um, like, I think that idealism just doesn't have those obstacles and it's within your analytical power yeah, as it's, such to be yeah. an idealist philosopher. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to, to be a philosopher is to spend your time thinking about ideas. So like, you know, if, if you can have a theory of history where you just have to do that, you know, that like, that sounds like the kind of thing that philosophers like as a profession would like more. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, I'll make, I'll make except, I mean, like, even the good idealist philosophers, you know, like Kant or Hegel, they, they did have a lot of interdisciplinary yeah, knowledge. And that was, is a different time. Um, but I just mean, like, the way things are now, like where, you know, there's a lot of pressure to like think quickly, to publish, to find your niche. It, it's, it's less attractive because it just feels less accessible, I think. And it requires more, more patience. And frankly, it's more patience than most of us have at this, at this time. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, fair enough. <laughs> um, I, I've, I've certainly spent, you know, enough thousands of hours on Twitter that, you know, that, that mine is not anything like what it used to be, but uh <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, right. Okay. So let's, uh, so, so actually that, that might be a really good kind of tie in to trying to go from what we have been mostly talking about, which are the problems with certain aspects of, you know, historical materialism classic, uh, and mm -hmm. to, to thinking a little bit about, you know, obviously we can't do very much of this right now, you know, but like thinking a little bit, you know, so people have at least some idea of, of what, you know, the improved versions might look like. And, and you mentioned, um, you mentioned Brenner when you're talking about interdisciplinary knowledge. And, and I think the, the way, the way I'd like to think about it is like the uh, overwhelming virtue of, of the Cohen book, even the chapters where he's like laid out exactly the claims that we've been talking about all the problems with, you know, for the last uh, half an hour, is that it it just makes um, like it makes the fundamental claims and arguments of uh, of the classic theory like really really clear, so you can then subject them to 
some sort of empirical test, see like, okay, mm -hmm. like as far as we could tell from looking at, you know, looking at what actually happened, for example, and, and what, you know, Brenner's particularly interested in was the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Is this what happened, right? I mean, now that we're clear on what the claim is, uh, is that it? And, uh, and then it, it seems like this is going to be, you know, probably the biggest problem because once you start getting into the nitty gritty of what that transition looked like, it really doesn't seem like it's what happened. Right. Um, so I think that actually before coming on, I thought, okay, if I was going to say something about the alternatives, I made a little list of, yeah, so if people yeah. are interested in just pursuing, like, you know, doing your own reading, um, I'd say that there's five and I might be wrong because so people can, I guess, chime in and say if they can think of other big categories. But I think that the next obvious place to go is to E.P. Thompson. Um, he's much used and abused in the academy, but he made some pretty fundamental objections to orthodoxy, where he argued that um, an early version of saying that you can't assume that class struggle is just going to happen. Like I said, you have to ask why they're doing one thing instead of something else. He puts it differently, but I think when he has this famous quote where like, he says that the working class was present at its own making. He has this thing about the self-making of the class, of class formation. Um, I think he's trying to ask those questions. Why does that evolve specifically, in his case, in the working class in England, um, in the way that it did there, as opposed to in some other way? So I think that starting with Thompson, it's a, it's a difficult book, but he has debates with other Marxist philosophers. Cohen is in part responding to him. Um, the second category is, I'd say, I'd, there's three people, Althusser, um, Miliband, and Pulansis. These are people who start trying to answer some of the holes in the orthodox theory by talking about ideology in the state. Mm -hmm. um, my opinion, this is just my opinion, I think Althusser doesn't overcome these obstacles. Um, and the other two are significantly different enough, but they, they're they're more preoccupied with with the state. So, um, looking at other institutions aside from class struggle is one way to kind of fill in these gaps. Political Marxism. So, who you mentioned, Robert Brenner and Ellen Wood. Um, I think that when it comes to asking the fundamental questions, I think that this, to me, this is the most convincing. Um, not because like I'm able to arbitrate all of the empirical debates, like what mm -hmm. exactly is Robert Brenner right about, but they ask these questions in like a militantly straightforward way about functionalism, about technological determinism. And I think Ellen Wood in particular tries to respond. And I think if you want to know, like, how would you start to develop an alternative um, theoretically, not just like, you know, you're not going to do what Robert Brenner did and go out back and look at the ledgers in 16th century England and see the change in the rents and the taxes. And the, you're probably not going to do that. But you could go back and you can look at why it's a different theoretical starting point. And then I think um, there's the analytical sociology tradition in which there's Eric Wright, um, Klaus Offa, um, Adam Przeworski, Pris I think is his name. These are people that I, I first read in, in Vivek's class, actually. And they're people who try to ask these kinds of questions in a class, in a complex capitalist society, um, why don't things transpire in the teleological way? And they try to talk about other causal mechanisms. And then the last one is a little off the beaten track for a lot of Marxists, but I think Karl Polanyi is um, in this category. He's um, got a way of talking about historical development that takes capitalism seriously, 
but has um, a way of incorporating culture, um, what he calls society, into like the kind of specific shapes it takes in different countries. And the reason I raise that is that Wolfgang Streak has been influential as a new kind of new theorist of capitalism, and so has Nancy Fraser. And they're both really influenced by Polanyi. And so when you think about like a meta theory, mm. I think that he's kind of like a, I mean, he's influential in other, uh, not like, I think maybe non-Marxist circles already, but I think like he's kind of having a, 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 a he's rolling in to like how people are thinking about capitalism and people might be interested in, in that. Yeah. So I, I guess, I guess one way to, you know, without getting into the nitty gritty of, of all of those people, uh, you know, which, which would be like an episode at least each, yeah. uh, that, uh, I think, you know, like kind of, taking a big step back here like what one thing that might be worth emphasizing is what like if you go um like if you think that you know we, sh we should be a little suspicious of of easy functionalist explanations uh if you think that it's not really uh that just the development of, of technology and productive capacity of society by itself doesn't really explain that much uh, mm -hmm. about, about the transition between one social system and another, you know, maybe, you know, maybe a certain amount of that is a necessary condition, you know, uh, but, uh, but, but it's, it's not gonna, it's not gonna get you, you know, to, to your explanation. It's certainly that plus the, the, like, hand wavy functionalism is, is, is definitely not going to be enough to, to get you to, to your explanation. So if you take those, those criticisms, um, and, uh, the, and, you know, we never really talked about, you know, never really talked about teleology, but like, you know, but you know, you might, you might have, you might also have like worries about whether there's a sense in which, uh, in which there's like a sort of signal direction of March, you know, that, that, you know, that explains things. Um, that if you take all of those criticisms, then that I, I guess I guess one one thing to linger on would be what's left of the original theory. Okay, so I love this question because now I can be a little bit more like philosophically speaking. Um, I think that it's possible to talk about system logics without thinking that they have um, like a meta historical direction. Like you can talk about them as having, um, I think in philosophy of science, it would be called like emergent properties, like things that emerge based on a local um, logic. So, but to step back from that, I think that the, the most concrete way of talking about the economy is mm. to stop exceptionalizing it from other kinds of social activities and behaviors. And this is something that I mentioned Anwar Sheikh before. Um, I was uh, listening to him some years ago, and when he he started challenging the idea that um, there was such a thing as as perfect competition in mm -hmm. the economy, the way that neoclassical economics say like, okay, you know, certain inputs and outputs, and there's going to be an, a general equilibrium, he was like if you stop thinking about the economy as something kind of this special analytical zone and you open it up to being a truly social phenomena, so not just an economic phenomena, like it is a social dynamic, then you get so much more room to move and to breathe as a theorist because you can say, 
okay, so people are facing certain constraints. They're dependent on the labor market. They have to mm. compete with one another. They're dependent on how many market shares they have. They have to, capitalists have to compete with one another. How, like, you know, and this is um, what, what Brenner calls the, the competitive constraint. Well, how do people think about these things? Like what norms emerge in, in confronting these constraints? when they collaborate together, when they don't collaborate together, where, like, how do they think about them? What ideas do they produce? How does it shape their relationships with other people? If they're religious, does it change the religious ideology or does it adapt to it? And then you get the peculiar, you know, forms that I think I mentioned last time I was on the show of like, you know, you get American Protestantism, which is supposedly so ascetic, mm -hmm. um, and pious and like you know family values and then they're like the, the most pot like militant possible capitalist like ideologues in the country it's really incredible so you know likewise in the united states the catholic church is much more conservative than it is elsewhere why is that and you can start saying like what kinds of what are they reacting to and this is something and i think that if you think about it as a practice like people are actually engaging with economic constraints and we want to know how they start to expect things of themselves in relation to others because they expect other people to react to them in a certain way and when you start saying okay I think I need to do this because I expect other people to do the same then you're not talking about methodological individualism you're talking about aggregate patterns like um like uh yeah, structural patterns. And you have, and then when you start asking about structural patterns, you, you have to say, what are people expecting? How are they articulating their needs? And how is it making them see each other? And why are they seeing each other in that way instead of another way? And the thing is, is that this can, may, may sound kind of messy, but I think if you actually talk about what kind of, um, like, like what the constraints are in any given time, then you both get the intentionality. This is what I'm reacting to. This is what I want to achieve. And then you can say, aha, there's a lot of unintended consequences because people try to do things and then it re and then they, they change the structure and that, you know, you know, in some way, Yeah. then they can't always control the outcome of that. So, and then people have to react to the later uh, challenges that those previous reactions um, were the cause of. And so in some sense, what Marx said that we make history, but not of our own making, it's not just like history in the abstract or these like huge structures that are just so impersonal dominating mm -hmm. us. And we don't like, we're inheriting the, 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 the sedimented practices mm -hmm. and activity of other people. And I think that's how you get to talk about structure because you can't change it as an individual, but at the same time, individuals do make and we have ideas about them. Ideas are, ideas are relevant. Like that's the thing right. that I think, um, and this is the last thing I'll say. Sure. I think that the mistake of materialists is to not talk about ideas um, and to act like the ideas are somehow, they're not driving history at all because we don't want to say we're not idealists. But it's actually the case that we can explain ideas better than they can because we can tell you where they come from and how they change and why. And that's something an idealist can never do. They can only talk about ideas as internally self-referential to themselves. And so not only is materialism going to give you an explanation for why things are happening based on 
with reference to the empirical facts, it can also explain to you better where the ideas come from that emerge alongside those empirical facts. And, and so I think that from this kind of perspective, Marxists have nothing to be defensive about. It's, um, it's a lack of articulation of an alternative thus far, but I think we have a lot of resources to be able to do it. Nice. Yeah, I, I really like, uh, you know, you call back to the example about American Protestantism uh, because, you know, part of what got me spending so much time thinking about materialist theory of history uh, was thinking about, um, it's going to sound goofy, but, you know, comes to bear, uh, thinking about, like, uh, you know, new atheism era Christopher Hitchens when he'd start talking about, like, uh, they you know, the, the the parties of God doing this or that or the other thing. And like, and it just, it just really hit me that he's almost talking about it as if he believed that like these ideas really were dropped onto earth from like from some sort of supernatural realm, you know, it's like, you know, why, you know, why did anybody, you know, think any of this stuff? Like, like, is, is, is it really, and, you know, and, and as you say, right, I mean, there's the Catholic Church in America, there's the Catholic Church in Germany, whatever, like, like it's this, this tremendous variation like you have these giant religious traditions that uh, that are incredibly flexible, you know, and and why is it that a particular form of it emerges at a particular time? And if you're trying to answer that question in a way that's just totally internal to the sphere of ideas, then it ends up getting really weird. Really weird. And the only, I mean, in the American context, the only solution anyone has ever found is just American exceptionalism. Americans are fucking weird. You know, mm -hmm. that's all. I mean, that's what it amounts, it amounts to. Like, how peculiar. Isn't it strange that they're so religious? Like, look at this group over here. Look at them in the mountains with their little cult. Look at the, look at the people. Why did, you know, look at the people in their abortion protests and how, how strange they're so zealous. They're so patriotic, you know, and um, I think that in, in, I mean, this is true of all idealism, but in the American context, it's really dangerous because you end up just being more fascinated by the oddities of people than um, being able to explain why it's developing in that way. And that's crippling because the more you say, oh, they're so conservative, they're so religious, they're so patriotic, the more you're convincing yourself that you cannot change their mind. That's mm -hmm. a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and so I, I guess maybe to, to try to, to say like a little bit more about, you know, what's left even after, you know, even after you make all of these adjustments, you know, you talked about, <laughs> Uh, you talked about like aggregate, you know, patterns uh, of of individual behavior, which I, which uh, which I really like because uh, because there's like a certain kind of like right wing, maybe libertarian like critic of of uh, of, of historical materialism who makes a big deal about well, individuals, you know, do things, you know, they don't they don't you know they're not part of some you know some collective entity like a you know like a class, right? It's just individuals doing things. And yeah, I reject for philosophers, this help this solves a couple of our philosophy of nine mind problems, yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, and then but then like all these same people have absolutely no problem talking about aggregate patterns explaining things in other contexts like when they're talking about like you know supply and demand in markets like they, they think that like in that context of course right you know we, we can you know we can aggregate you know individual behavior into these like big meta level you know explanations that predict what's going to happen 
in the future, but, uh, but you can't do it here. So if, um, so if like the materialist theory of history, like really broad strokes is about explaining uh, a range of, of, of phenomena, like, and what should be in that range and shouldn't is, is a huge question, you know, that, uh, but like explaining like an interesting range of phenomena that we're interested in uh, by in ways that are not in some primary way about people just happening to have certain ideas in their heads. Uh, but, uh, but that it, you know, that can certainly be part of the story, but, you know, but that it that explain that ultimately uh, in terms of some kind of story that is going to be about things like, you know, material forces, relations, and, you know, and all, and, and all of that stuff. Uh, and, and that that can, and that that can explain both, um, you know, how we got here, right? While, while we're not still living in feudalism and uh, also, you know, why, and, and, and also how the possibility is created that we could, that we could get out of here, you know, that, that, that we could, you know, we could go to socialism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's, which is the, which is the original idea, right? I mean, this is like what Engels means when he calls Marxism, you know, scientific socialism, that you're gonna try to make use of the best social science knowledge that you that you have available to you in order to uh, in order to think hard about you know about how you know how capitalism came about how it is that we you know we could get from capitalism to socialism and that project is still absolutely there even if you think that a lot of the uh, a lot of the original details you know need to be reexamined. Yeah, I mean, I think that it just makes it more political, like you have to actually make the argument to people about why they should it want socialism and why it will help them why why they why they should want one reform that leads to the next or why ultimately they should want a rupture why should they want to take the chance of any of those things. I mean, let leave like rupture off the table like why should you join a trade union? You, know, you have to start asking people why you're doing what you're doing. And I think that, of course, political organizers always knew this. I mean, I don't even believe that in the early years of like the, the movements for social democracy or um, for any other kind, I mean, what was then called social democracy, which was you know, not just what we now know as social democracy. I don't believe that these people didn't understand that they had to explain to people why they were doing what they, they were doing. I just think there's there's a impoverishment that happened when people became continually disempowered, when it start when the movement started to lose momentum or was becoming kind of progressively disempowered um, by the 80s and then at some point was completely crushed then it's it's almost like revolutionary faith was was um more useful because why not there was almost no one to make the argument to i mean when i was younger who was i talking i mean i i don't know you know that you okay you know yeah. like who are you making an argument to you could just like say you could just make you know big claims because honestly it, it didn't really matter that much um but now there's a there's a the emergence of something like a constituency, and I think that if you stop thinking about things in 
like because we can no, we can man, we can hardly even imagine the future, let alone predict it, let alone say there's a teleology. So I think the whole thing just makes clear that the political payoff of this is again first that your orientation toward the past is going to say something about your orientation towards the future. It's going to tell you some hows and whys of why you got here and suggest some things to do about it. But if you don't have a teleology and you don't have confidence that you're going to find like the magic key that if you're like, okay, if I, you know, if I screw this bolt and capitalism, take it out, then the whole thing will collapse. Okay. You don't have that anymore. Then you actually have to start thinking. Um, and this is all, this is more, I think, philosophical. You have to start thinking about convincing people to do things, but why? And there's always a normative justification. There's a value argument. Why we're doing what we're doing? What kind of society do we want? And I think that socialists did not, um, I guess the, the socialists that I have read since the late 1970s, it's full of like lots of like big aspirations. There's a lot of good ideas, but how to make that argument in relatable, accessible, and politically relevant terms is not a part of that repertoire. And if you don't think history is necessarily going anywhere, the only conclusion is that you have to become a little bit more politically savvy, but also existentially anxious. You know, you should feel like a we're in a we have a we have a task to do um, to do here. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah. The uh, the. Right, the, uh, the the new society isn't just sort of inevitably coming out of the the, the birth pangs, you know, of uh, of the uh, of the old one. Relatively, uh, uh, no. Yes, which right would be awesome, but I think at this point, historically, we've we've like pretty firmly established that no. Uh, so uh, so which 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 makes the the task of 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 convincing people that they they have they have good reasons to to try to uh, to try to. Support those reforms and ultimately support those that that rupture uh, that much uh, that much more important. You gotta. Uh, I'm, I'm just gonna be self indulgent here. So you gotta give them an argument. So uh, give them an argument. Yay! <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Lily. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. All right. That was Lillian Sakerchia. Uh, who is one of the hosts of uh, a really good podcast people should check out called What's Left of Philosophy. Uh, also, just a reminder, that class that I mentioned earlier, uh, Analytic Marxism and the Materialist Theory of History, uh, is uh, going to be starting this Sunday um, at uh, Michael Albert's online school for social and cultural change. The Zoom classes are going to be on Sundays from one to three EST. Uh, that is that uh, that is my cat Shabazz's tail. Our cat. <laughs> uh, you can tell because because uh, it you know even if you weren't the only cat here, uh, it is a very distinctive crooked tail. <laughs> so uh, no no mistaking that in a crowd of cats. <laughs> All right, so. Uh, this, for anybody tuning in for the first time, is the other Dr. Burgess, Jennifer Burgess. Dr. Uh, Mrs. Dr. Burgess. Dr. Mrs. Dr. Burgess, uh, who uh, is a philosophy professor uh, at Georgia State uh, in, uh, in Atlanta. Uh, she uh, was also uh, one of the very few people uh, who got to watch the Charlie Kirk debate. I did. On Friday Live. Everybody else gets to see it in a few weeks. Um, 
I believe we have a banner for this. Uh, did that end up getting made? Okay. Uh, so um, we will have a banner next week uh, for uh, for this segment. Uh, which... Will Jay and Drew be making this banner? Yes. Outstanding. Uh, <laughs> which uh, is... Um, <laughs> So the, uh, you know, this is our usual, um, this is our usual end of the uh, main show on Monday Night Philosophy segment, but for the three weeks starting with this week, it has a special name, which is? Uh, teaching Philosophy to Charlie Kirk? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because, man, he needs to learn some. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, uh. I wouldn't have said this, uh, you know, it would have, would have felt tacky if I'd said it, but uh, you, you tweeted something which, uh, you know, no comment about, uh, about, uh, about how he struck you as, as being a little bit like a freshman who thinks he solved philosophy. Uh, so there are a few things that came up uh, over the course of that debate, and this is a way to kind of tease it a little bit. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the show, we talked about the main sort of political content of the debate uh, in terms of what was said there. But, you know, in this segment this week and next week, the week after, before we can actually finally show it on the 25th, uh, we are going to tease some of the philosophy content by uh, talking a little bit about a few philosophy, a few topics within that uh, that, uh, that that our, our friend Charlie might stand to brush up on. No, <laughs> um, oh, and and uh, since Ben mentioned that I had tweeted something, I here want to plug my own Twitter, which is Prof Jen Burgess. Uh, that's Jen with two N's. So anyone who wants to follow me, there we go. Yes, uh, Jen has a brand new Twitter account for like the last like what week and a half or something. Week and a half, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so, so check that out. Because Facebook and Instagram aren't enough. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, the cat's tail was not a fancy new mic. That was just the cat's tail. But uh, they have actually had a good mic for a while. But I hope the sound is better now because I got a couple of sound shields uh to uh to kind of put around the mic uh as uh, as well as this nice uh beautiful studio lighting that you can see if you're watching this on youtube we, are and really... we have to wear these things now yes the headphones so we are really sprucing up the audio visual setup <laughs> uh we uh we are not uh we're not going to make it all the way up to the level of uh, of what they've got going at turning points usa more about that coming up in the post game but uh, for right now, as far as the content goes, uh, let's uh, let's get into uh, to the first of those three uh, philosophy subjects uh, that we will uh, be proceeding to uh, to teach Charlie about if he watches these. Uh, uh, Darius, the answer to that is no. <laughs> uh, no comment. So uh, in any case. Uh, so uh, the uh, the first one of these has to do with the Euthyphro problem. Uh, so, which, which is presented in Plato's dialogue, the Euthyphro. All right, <laughs> have at it. Uh, oh, you want me to tell it? 
Uh, so, so Euthyphro is this, this dude in ancient Greek and uh, Socrates wants him to define piety for him. And um, anyway, they, they get around to, to asking, does, yes, that is my, the first time that I've attended something uh, offense. Anyway, um, so Socrates gets around to asking, do the gods love something? Do the gods love it because it is pious or is it pious because the gods love it? Yeah. And, so, uh, so just to, just to back up a little, uh, oh, are we backing up? Just a little, just a little. So Euthyphro was pers <laughs> uh, was prosecuting his father for murder. There we go. <laughs> or, oh, we're backing all the way up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Euthyphro <laughs> was this, uh, this like ancient Greek prophet, uh, who you know, has prosecuted his father, as Jed just said, for murder. Uh, and he had left us what he had left a slave in a ditch, is that right? And he I believe died, so. I believe so. I think that's right. Um, which is actually really interesting because the uh, the I think the like implied values behind this discussion are very foreign to contemporary readers. I think there's been some you know positive progress, uh, you know, on various fronts uh, since uh, <laughs> since this was written, but uh, at the time, um, like a, a very common objection. Would be well. This is uh, this is impious. Uh, that you know you you have a you know like you know you have a duty uh, that's like a religious duty to uh, to uh, side with your father in a sort of conflicts that might come up. Uh, and not, even if your father kills somebody, yeah, apparently uh, the. Uh, uh, now, if if either of our fathers are watching this, that is that is really not. Uh, the prevailing rule in 21st century America. So. I can guarantee that my father is not watching this. <laughs> um, well, in any case, if he is, Tommy, don't kill anybody and think that Jennifer is gonna is gonna take your side automatically. Uh, but... There's football on. My dad is definitely not watching this. <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, but uh, Euthyphro says. Uh, that the, the you know the holy is that which the gods approve of, and he has uh, this, and he has some some arguments about why the gods approve of his action. That part's not necessarily so important, but the important part is what Jen was just saying. About, That's what I said, bro. Yeah, yeah. Well, fair enough. <laughs> so now that everybody's up to up to speed. Uh, about uh yeah we can use the word pious we can use the word holy yeah good right uh so yeah and the way this this translates uh to the more relevant context at all is if you've seen any of charlie's previous debates um the one with kyle kalinsky which actually i think was the best of the previous ones uh for my money uh, or uh, Sam, no, I don't think it came up with Sam Cedar, but Kyle Kalinsky for sure, um, and Vosh maybe. Anyway, I, I know it came up in at least a couple of them, uh, you know, that he likes to say this thing about how there is no social contract. You know, I didn't sign the social contract. Uh, but, you know, there's nobody said you did. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, uh, that is a line he's used before. I, I mean, I did. I don't know where you were that day. <laughs> yeah, and, and I actually think maybe we could do social contract theory as part of our next uh, next installment <laughs> in this series. Uh, 
But rather than there be the social contract, he says that rights come from God. And then there's a further question about what that means, that rights come from God. Um, and presumably it's not that God is like striking people down for trying to violate your, your moral rights. Cause you know, that more's the pity doesn't generally seem to happen. That would be a lot of striking. Sure. A lot of smiting. That's how you're supposed to put it. Well, smiting, smiting. smiting. There we go. Uh, presumably it's, yeah. And he did say this at one point uh, that it's that, you have these moral rights, be, you know, like that it's God wanting you to have them is like why morally you should have. That seems to be the idea. But then the Euthyphro dilemma comes back up. How would you rephrase it for this? Um, do you have these rights because God gives them to you or does God give them to you because they are your rights? Yeah, right. So like. Does that sound good? Sure. Uh, or, or I think, uh, the, the way, and you know, there will be one, this was already on Twitter. So, uh, there will be one little spoiler here about what went down. Um, so. Yes, I tweeted a spoiler. <laughs> so everyone who's not following me really should be. You never know. <laughs> what she might tweet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. And, um. Uh, so I asked him about this, said, okay, so do you think it would be unjust to deny people these rights because God wants you to have them or does God want you to have them because it would be unjust to deny them to you? Ooh. Uh, to which Charlie's answer, which we will just present. To which with Charlie Kirk uh, pulled out his binder and started flipping through the pages real fast. No, that's, that's, that's not what he did. Uh, <laughs> He did, he did have a binder. We'll get into he that. He did have a binder. We, we, we will get into that. But uh, no, he he did have a uh, he did have an answer of sorts uh, to uh, to this question. So uh, what was his answer? Why not both? Yes. Porque uh, no los dos. Uh, Charlie, which I've always found that meme funny because she says, you know, why not two? Where there really is a word in Spanish that means both, as one would think. But we are so anti being bilingual around here that, you know, nobody would would know that. So but we know dose. So that's OK. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Charlie Kirk's answer to the youth pro dilemma was both, which is confusing uh, because the alternatives are mutually exclusive. So um, I'm still puzzled over that one, but uh, you know we'll 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 think on that some more. That's the question, Antonio. How does it work? <laughs> That's like, well, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Both. No, <laughs> the answer cannot be both. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I've got to say. Uh, I'll, I'll just give a small editorial comment here and say that that did not make a tremendous amount of sense to me. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> like, if, you know, what's the relationship between these two concepts? Um, you know, is, is it one because the other, or is, you know, that I, I don't, I think both is, um, I think in this case there, there might indeed be a good reason why not. Uh, 
No los dos. No los dos. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, we are going to be back next week for another excited segment of uh, teaching philosophy to Charlie Kirk. Uh, this time, maybe we can get a little bit into uh, social contract theory and, uh, and roles. Uh, there, there was uh, there was some confusion about all of that, uh, but uh, there is confusion in a lot of places. If you ask me, <laughs> this is where you say no comment. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> that that is exactly what I should say. Uh, I will deliver a few comments to patrons in the post game, uh, so uh, we will uh, also uh, be uh, be talking if if we have time. We are off to a late start with this uh, about. Uh, some, some protests at Dave Smith's uh, comedy shows. Uh, and uh, we are going to have a post-game guest this week. Uh, which, and it's not me. Uh, well, I mean, you can join too if you want. Uh, but uh, our post-game guest this week, uh, as mentioned earlier, is John Palmucci uh, Jr., uh, better known to Twitter users as Gabagool Marks, uh, who uh, is the man behind the social Sopranos memes, uh, which... Um, Anybody who uh, uh, follows me on Twitter, but definitely anybody who's friends with me on Facebook, has seen me share about a hundred of those. Uh, they, uh, they consistently make me uh, make me laugh. Uh, so we'll share some of those memes, and most importantly, we will find out whether he likes the many saints of Newark. Uh, so uh, we are going to sign off right there for this week. Team Snoopy forever. Left is best.